Hi, I'm Catlin Tucker, and this is The Balance. And today I have a great interview for you guys. I get to chat with one of my favorite women, Dr. Katie Novak. She is an educator, an author several times over, a trainer, a speaker, and I have had the wonderful privilege of writing two books with her now. And we came together to talk about our most recent book, The Shift to Student-Led. This is a follow-up to our first book, UDL and Blended Learning. And in this new book, The Shift to Student-Led, we focus on 10 time-consuming teacher-led workflows that sometimes feel frustratingly ineffective and reimagine each one from a sustainable student-led perspective and offer anywhere from three to six strategies in each chapter to help teachers make these shifts in classrooms today. So very excited to be able to have this conversation with Katie. All right. So I am thrilled to have Dr. Katie Novak back on the show to chat with me about our newest book, The Shift to Student-Led. Um, I've been trying to pick Katie down between our two schedules. It's been almost impossible because you just got back from Australia. So tell us about what you're doing there. Oh my gosh. It was so, so, so good. We went over there. We as in the Royal we, I went over there <laughs> me and myself and I, and I presented at this amazing conference for an organization called Alum Learning. That's mm. really looking to create more inclusive classrooms. And the really amazing thing about this is I did a, a few of the keynotes, mm -hmm. but largely all the other keynote presenters were a part of the disability community. Oh, and wow. When you are like learning about the importance of inclusive education, and there was one speaker, Nathan, who had Down syndrome, and another speaker, Ebony, was autistic. That's how she identified. I know that sometimes we like the people first language, but I think it's really important to allow people to describe themselves. Mm -hmm. But we had like so many amazing presenters. There was this, you know, kind of uh, country or continent renowned radio and television broadcaster who was blind. And oh, wow. what I loved about it so much was simply that we talk a lot about the importance of choice and voice, but that conference absolutely elevated voices of people who are part of the community that we're really looking to serve by being more inclusive and more equitable. So it was really amazing. That is so cool. And did I see a picture of you bungee jumping, Katie? It wasn't bungee jumping, although I have <laughs> dabbled in the old bungees. Uh, it was, I climbed to the top of the Sydney Harbor Bridge. Oh. And that was like my thank you for presenting at the conference. And at the very end, I gave my final talk. And then they said, you're climbing the bridge. I would do anything. <laughs> but they were like, we actually contacted your husband on the back end to make sure that you didn't have like some like ridiculous fear of heights, which is like a lot of people are scared of heights. And then it's oh, like right here, right yeah. over here. Yeah. Oh no, I scurried up that bad boy and I was posing at the top and I would have bungee jumped off of it, but they weren't available to me. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That picture is amazing. If you guys are not following Katie on Instagram, you are missing one photo gem after another. So Ironically, I was in Dubai, I think yep. the exact same time you were working in Australia and my one day to explore before I dove into work, I decided to go to the Burj Khalifa, okay. which is yep. the tallest building, but I'm terrified of heights. And so I was like, you cannot go to Dubai and not like get up there 
see this view. And so I ended up like booking like a lunch at their atmosphere. I guess it's the highest restaurant in like the whole world. And I was pretty terrified. I was pretty thrilled that I was able to order a glass of wine because I'm not sure I could have handled it otherwise. (laughs) So interestingly, I have presented in Dubai and did not go up to the top of the building. I saw it. Like I stood up there and looked at the fountains and it was Mm -hmm. magical, but now I have regrets and have to go back. You really do. Yeah, it was a really interesting experience. All right. So we are on the same in the same country. And so let's talk about the shift to student led. I think one of the questions I get a lot is so you had already written UDL and blended learning with Katie, like why this book? How is it different? So you want to you want to take that one? Yes, yes, yes. When people (laughs) hear about universal design or about blended learning, they always jump to, we don't have a lot of time. And this seems like so much work for educators. Mm -hmm. And goodness knows educators don't have a lot of extra to give right now. As my mom used to say, like, you don't get blood from a stone. And I think (laughs) that many people, when they're learning about UDL, And they're Mm -hmm. learning about having to provide these options and then trying to operationalize that through blended learning. All they're seeing is piling on planning. And Mm -hmm. that is not the case. Neither of us experienced that because Mm -hmm. a lot of it is recognizing how capable students are of co-planning these learning experiences. And if we value student agency and student voice, we got to put those babies to work. So Uh kind of adding on to our work in UDL and blended learning was how do we have students, even very, very young students partner with us Mm -hmm. to shift some of those heavy preparation workflows to kids so that we can do what we do best, which is building relationships, providing feedback and more facilitating learning instead of spending all of our time doing what we now know students and assistive technology is very capable of helping us to do. Absolutely. I'm always saying, you know, what technology does really well is information transfer. You can watch a video, listen to a podcast, interact with a website, read an article. What humans do really well is connection and empathizing and the feedback. And so why aren't we doing more to kind of lean on the technology when we can to free ourselves to engage in that human side of this work and really help learners to develop into that kind of expert learner profile, those students who understand their strengths, their limitations, they can advocate for themselves. And so really in the book, each chapter is dedicated to what Katie and I would describe as a time-consuming, teacher-led, often frustratingly ineffective workflow and reimagining it from a student-led perspective that we feel is more sustainable. And there is definitely onboarding that has to happen to help students develop the skills to kind of share the responsibility of learning. But once we've gotten them to a place where they can actively engage in meaning making with peers and, you know, giving each other feedback, right, that meaningful peer feedback, engaging in self-assessment, then it just lightens the load for us and allows us to invest our time and energy in class to the aspects of this work that are most rewarding rewarding and enjoyable. So I'm curious, Katie, like when you think about the book, do you have a favorite workflow shift that really stands out for you? What I think as a parent is how incredibly (laughs) amazing it would be to shift some of that like 
classroom to family communication and engagement to kids. Mm -hmm. Because goodness knows, as a mom of three, well, I have four kids, but three of them are in middle school. So they're kind of on the tween teen cusp is they're not super forthcoming, especially my (laughs) sons with what they're doing in school. Uh And, you know, my kids have amazing, amazing teachers who go out of their way to, you know, reach out. I think I hear from my kids' teachers more than most. Let's say I hear from a teacher, you know, once a month about each kid with like Mm -hmm. a specialized, hey, wanted to let you know, Breck's doing really well. And I can't imagine, she has 120 kids, how long that takes. Mm -hmm. And there's so much space in between where I would love to know what, you know, they're working on. And here's the truth. Here's the truth, which is like so terrible. But like, if I received an email from Breck, I would read every word. I get a lot of emails from school. I'm like, snooze, I'll skip this. So I think one (laughs) of the workflows that I love, not only as a teacher who spent way too much time contacting families, which I think is still valuable, Mm -hmm. but really shifting to students communicating with families. And I love the workflow where at the end of every single week, for example, we have Mm -hmm. students reflect on what was the, the, the study that what would we study this week? Like what were the, like the priority standards? What was it that you learned to do? What are you proud of? What do you need to work on next week? And then have them actually craft communication to their grownups. Mm-hmm. And you talked about, you could do that in a slideshow template. It could be something where you provided options and choices. Like what is the best way to get in touch with your, your grownups? Is it text? Is it social media? Is it an ongoing email? But I love the idea of really encouraging students to reach out and say, this is what I'm really proud of. This is what I'm working on. These are some Mm -hmm. things that I'm missing and I need to make up. And then we don't have to scramble after them so often to try to communicate. And again, that's not replacing the importance of connecting with families, but it really supplements it and provides a closer relationship, even within, you know, a a family structure. Absolutely. I always thought, I think there are a bunch of aspects of this profession that are wildly unrealistic. And the idea that a single teacher, whether you're elementary and you've got 30 little ones or whether you're secondary and you have 165 of them, how on earth are you supposed to communicate with that many families? ends up just being that the only time you truly communicate, except for apparently your kids' lovely teachers, because I'm not getting an email every month. Um, the only time we end up communicating is when there's like an issue, right? When there's some problem that's got to be solved or a student's not performing in the way we think they're capable of in the classroom. And so I really love that parents are getting windows into the work kids are doing. They're hearing about the work from the student's perspective. And really kind of that puts the onus on students also to kind of own their experience and have a bit more accountability and responsibility um, that I think can also kind of seep into their mindset when they're in a class or like, I'm going to have to tell my parents how this is going at the end of every week or two. Maybe I want to focus on this work. Maybe I want to be a bit more invested in it. Um, I would say one of the workflows in education besides parent communication that just feels absolutely unsustainable his current approaches to grading, obviously, right? The, the teachers who are breaking their backs to put a score on everything because they worry if they don't, learners 
won't do the work. And one of the things we talk about is how do you position the student to engage in regular self-assessment? So instead of the teacher spending hours giving um, points and grades or correcting practice and review, it's like, how do we position learners to look at their work, work with a partner on their own as part of a group, whatever works best for them, to take an answer key or to compare their work to a really strong exemplar and complete kind of a simple rubric, thinking about what am I learning about myself, my skill set, my understanding of concepts through this practice of self-assessment? And I think at first teachers really worry, like, well, they if they don't get a grade, they're not going to do it. They're not going to see the value in it. And I totally disagree. I think if students are engaged in a regular practice of self-assessment that's meaningful for them, they're going to start to appreciate their own growth and how these different assignments we're asking them to do and these different activities are impacting that growth. And that serves to build their confidence, um, help them to see the value of the work they're doing in classroom. So for me, um, I mean, the feedback, the self-assessment, assessment, the communication to parents, these are all highlights because I think they're such pain points for teachers who don't have a lot of time and energy. The other thing too, is I don't know how many listeners are familiar with Hattie's visible learning, but self-reported grading is way, 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 way up there. Like one of the top three strategies that you can integrate. Mm -hmm. And it's one that provides you with so much more balance when you're shifting that over to say, let's spend some time together and let's look at the success criteria. Let's spend some time and look at some exemplars so that you understand what it is that you need to do or accomplish. And then like, what is the distance between where you're at and where you're going? And I also do, have you ever seen the video Austin's butterfly? No. Oh my gosh. Okay. So everybody listening, it is amazing. (laughs) So a lot of people think, well, you know, this is great for middle school students or for secondary students, but we can't depend on, let's say, preschool students or kindergarten students to have, you know, really valid and reliable self-assessment or peer assessment. Mm -hmm. And there's this amazing YouTube video called Austin's Butterfly, where Mm -hmm. I think it's Ron Berger or Berger, I could be totally butchering that last name and I don't want to do that but essentially shows all of these preschoolers a drawing of a butterfly. And it's exactly as you would expect a preschooler to draw a butterfly, right? You have like the little tiny middle and then these big bubbly wings. (laughs) And he says to the preschoolers, what do you think of this butterfly? And they're like, oh my gosh, it's so good. It's so good. And it's like, (laughs) yeah, it's okay if you're like four, right? But the butterfly doesn't look like that. And then he shows them a scientific picture of a butterfly, right? Mm -hmm. Like a big monarch butterfly, all the details on the wings and the shape. And he says, okay, so like, how are these two different? And what could we say to Austin, little boy who drew this cute little butterfly? What could Mm -hmm. we say to make it more like this example? Mm -hmm. And then they started saying things like, well, Austin's butterfly's wings are like those big bubbles, but I noticed that in that scientific picture, they're more pointed at the end. And they go through all of these different revisions and show that through the self-assessment, peer assessment, these students in preschool were able to create these really beautiful, scientifically accurate 
versions of a butterfly. So it's totally worth six minutes view to show that when we're really clear about this is where we're going and we honor really young learners to be a part of getting there, they get there. And that's not the teacher just going, I'll give you a sticker for your first butterfly, Mm -hmm. but that we're not there yet. So let's help each other get closer. Yeah. I was actually just speaking at the asset conference. I delivered the keynote in New York, um, right before I went to Dubai and I, I had the, the keynote was about shifting workflows with blended learning and really, you know, diving into some of this work from our book. And then I had a follow-up and I thought my follow-up session, I don't want to do a Q and a that's boring and it's not modeling anything I just talked about. And so they came in and And I had these little table tents with QR codes around the room and I had chosen four workflows and each QR code took them to like a playlist that would show them a video or give them some options and choices of how to learn about this particular workflow. Um, So it was very much like a choose your own adventure. And I said, and I'll be up here at the front. So if you've got a burning question, you don't have to sit in the crowd and listen to all the other questions you don't care about. You just get your needs met and then you go on your adventure. And one of the two women who came and sat with me for a bit of time both preschool, well, one was preschool, one was kindergarten in a district. And she said, I want to understand what this parent communication could look like at the low levels of elementary, like the very beginning of elementary. And we just sat there brainstorming. And these women were phenomenal because I had shared, you know, in the book, we share that glow, grow slide deck, which you can literally share with parents at the beginning of the year. We were even talking about making like a little bitly short link with like their first initial last name and age so that parents had one easy to follow formula to get to their kids slide deck. And they said, but even with the sentence stems, I don't know if the kids could articulate their kind of glowing grow. And so the other woman was like, yeah, but we have screencastify as a district, like the kids, we could teach them how to do little videos. And I'm sure their parents would love to see them holding up their work and talking through their week. And so it was just so reassuring to like, see, like they knew that it was going to take onboarding. They knew it was going to take structure. It was probably going to have to happen at their little kidney desk at the first couple of times, but it was doable. And we really dedicate time to things we value. And if we think it's valuable for students to be able to articulate their progress and communicate with their people at home, um, then we make time for it. And it was exciting to just get to troubleshoot and brainstorm with these teachers and see how excited they were about the possibilities. I mean, think about how much time you're saving in the long run by investing. You know, we spend a lot of time essentially trying to react our way out of what could have been prevented if we were a little bit more proactive. And when I think about how much time I spent communicating with families and going back and forth in email. And again, I do believe there's absolutely a place for that. It's not that we're totally hands off, but the, the, the nature of building students' awareness of how they're doing, just practicing communication with adults, of which one of my favorite stories is when I was an assistant superintendent, mm-hmm. technically I oversaw HR, so all of human resources. So oh my if gosh. you were to find the listing for a job, for example, on a website, it would be me, right, who was like on there. I didn't, you know, interview, uh, you know, teachers in specific schools, but like I was the contact. Mm-hmm. And I once had a teacher who wrote me an email uh, as the assistant superintendent of schools. And it said, hey, 
when are you going to open my application? And I'm like, well, now I'm going to go very out of my way to make sure that <laughs> the application is not opened simply because like that is not a respectful way to communicate. And I think mm -hmm. that as you know, assistive technology becomes so good at helping us craft these messages. Like mm -hmm. how do we help people remember just the human nature of communicating? So yes. being able to create a video, you know, hey mom, hey dad, you know, this is the day. And, and that is really, really important. And I was shocked that somebody who was very well prepared based on the resume would mm. think that it was appropriate to send me something like they would send a text. Right. Yeah. So it's like, how do we communicate formally? How do we communicate informally? Like you can have so much fun with that, even within the structure of communicating. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think when I first started having my own students email their parents, it was literally because I got so many emails that just read, I need this. And I was like, lowercase I with a right. lowercase I. No, no period, no punctuation. And I was like, this is not how you write an email. And yeah, so these are key communication skills. And I think one of the things I want to highlight that you said is in each of the chapters, we offer anywhere, what we say, like three to six strategies yep. for how to shift the workflow, because we know there's variability in terms of teachers and what you're going to gravitate to and what's going to work for your students. And we're not suggesting. So, for example, in the first chapter, we focus on shifting from information transfer, teachers spending a lot of time at the front of the room, you know, mini lessons, lectures, transferring information and really exploring some alternatives where we can position the student to discover, investigate, make meaning, things like a choose your own adventure experience or reciprocal teaching. But it's not that you won't ever be at the front of the room right. guiding a mini lesson, right? Or that you might not capture a little lecture in video and make it available. It's just that we want to free teachers up with these strategies and allow them to kind of add them to their tool belt. So we're really sharing that responsibility with learners and treating this work more as a partnership. Because if it's not a partnership, the mathematical numbers that we're dealing with is just there's no way to make it sustainable if students aren't actively engaging and sharing that responsibility for learning with us. And yes, it takes some onboarding scaffolding, modeling. Like I was coaching a teacher who was trying reciprocal teaching. And again, it was like, why are we doing this? Okay, here, let's, let's do a fishbowl example and let's pick it apart and talk about it. Then you're going to go into your groups and you're going to try it and we're going to reflect and discuss. And so of course there is definitely a bit of work on the front end to onboard kids to any new strategy that positions them to drive their learning. But as you're saying, my goodness, the payoff in terms of time, you know, the dividends you get back, so worth the investment. So, so this, this reminds me so much of something that happened at my house in December is, so, <laughs> you know, I have four kids and, you know, Breck, we call him techie Brecky. So one of my kids is just like the hacker mentality where he just wants to figure out everything. And so, mm -hmm. you know, so, so kind of him to prepare a wish list for the holidays for us 
which was an Excel spreadsheet, which included exact links oh with pricing and the dates that certain things were going to go on sale. There was like charts about like priority things. It was ridiculous, right? So he's 11. That's um, amazing. <laughs> and so Bowden, who's seven at the time, was like, I want to make one of those. And it was like, oh gosh, like it was one of those things of like, <laughs> it's so complicated to learn how to create the formulas. And so I was like, nope, this is not good teaching, Katie. Like you got to model it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, every morning for about a week, we sat at my desk together and practiced like copying and pasting and embedding a link and using the sum formula. And like the first day, if I had stopped, it would have been a disaster. Yeah. Right? And I think that sometimes we don't give the routine building enough time to actually mm -hmm. build because I was like, okay, so the first thing is to find the item that you would like online. And even yep. that, I'm like, oh my gosh. But now he is so into spreadsheets for everything, right? So it was, you know, probably, I probably had to spend 10 or 15 days with him kind mm -hmm. of going over. And then I, you know, very UDL, I created like a visual representation and a checklist of the steps. I love it. But he was able to do it completely independently. And now I have two different um, spreadsheets of which I can, you know, make my purchases from. And like, sometimes there were notes, like must be exact one. I'm like, oh, good grief. But I think that kids are so, so capable. And yes. sometimes they just need a little bit more practice as mm -hmm. opposed to saying they can't. It's like, okay, well, they can't do this independently yet. So what do we need to do to help build that capacity? Yeah, absolutely. And what's interesting is when I hear that, obviously, Brecky might not want to help his younger brother <laughs> figure this out. But there's so many moments in a classroom too, when you're onboarding kids and you're practicing and you're modeling and they're working together where it's like, we have kids in these rooms who are incredibly well-versed in lots of different things. And so how do we also really lean into that peer-to-peer -peer support, that peer-to-peer teaching. So if somebody's floundering or somebody's not sure how to do something that we're really allowing them to kind of tap into the collective intelligence and the support systems that are in that room. Cause I feel like so often, you know, it always falls on the teacher and even students are conditioned. They hit a bump and it's like, Oh, Ms. Tucker, Ms. Tucker, Ms. Tucker. And I'm like, have you, what have you done here to try to figure anything out? Well, nothing because they just look to us to solve the problem. So yeah. it's also about teaching them to like use their resources and ask questions and talk to a partner um, in order to kind of navigate some of these new routines and workflows. I love it. If uh, in the scenario of siblings, we all know that patience, <laughs> patience is something that we still need to work on, but uh, he would be amazing for anyone who was not his little brother. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, um, it's cool. Uh, patience is something I'm still working on. So I yeah, feel no, again, I, feel. I think that, I mean, it's, it's a life skill for everyone. And what I always say to my kids and to anybody really is all of us at some point reach the edge of our ability to cope. And mm -hmm. that's what I say when I'm like, that's it, I'm losing it. And they're like, you're not being very patient. I'm like, I have reached the edge of my ability to cope. <laughs> well, that's, you know what this is making me think of too, is I have worked, and I don't know if you've heard this a bit. I've worked with a lot of teachers who've come back into classrooms after COVID and they will say things like my kids won't talk in class. They will not work together. They're just like, it's almost like whatever 
that two years of social isolation, whatever the impact was, is like made them uncomfortable maybe being socially interactive. And a lot of the things we talk about in the book really require learners to engage with each other. Like, of course, we want to give them options and choices at times to work on their own or with a partner as part of a group. But, you know, reciprocal teaching, jigsaw strategies, peer feedback, like a lot of these routines are really asking them to lean into the community and really tap into that. So how do you, are you hearing that too? How do you respond? Yeah. (laughs) And the other thing is like COVID or not COVID, Clearly we went through that as, as a world, but mm-hmm. a lot of the communication among teens, even without COVID restrictions is online mm-hmm. where the face-to-face collaboration and, you know, just trying to get around what's culturally appropriate body language and eye mm-hmm. contact and volume. That's so interesting to me that when I was younger, so my daughter and I were talking about something the other day and I was like, you can't spend all your time on your phone. She's like, I bet you did when you were in middle school. I'm like, they didn't exist. <laughs> I had one phone in the kitchen and like the, the little cord, the spindly cord only went like six feet. So if I really stretched, I could like maybe make it out the back porch and close the sliding door. So no one heard my conversations, Uh but it's so interesting. There was no other option than to hang out with my friends because there were five of us in the house with one phone and my mom likes to talk on the phone. So there wasn't a lot of opportunity for me and I'll have kids over my house. Like my son will have his friends over and they'll all be sitting in a room together on their phones. I'm like, hang out with each other. They're like, we are playing a game with each other. I'm like, you Kids need to put it down. But I think that even outside of the social isolation of COVID, I think that the availability of technology has minimized the need Mm. to have these relationships. And then when we have, you know, people in the workplace who are actually collaborating, that's going to be disastrous in 10 years if this keeps up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was reading an interesting um, email blast that AJ Giuliani sent out. Oh, I read that this morning. It was super great. Great. Shout out to AJ. But hey, I think AJ. One, of, one of the things he said that like I really resonated is because we I hear this all the time is we don't know what job are even going to be around when our kids are entering the workforce. A bunch of jobs are going to disappear. New jobs we don't even know of are going to pop up. But what he said that I was like, oh, this is so this is so true is it doesn't matter what these future jobs we don't know of are. We know they're going to have to work with other people. <laughs> they're going to have to be able to communicate and collaborate and compromise and empathize and all of these things that are so critical that we have to be cultivating in classrooms because as you're pointing out, a lot of them go home and they're just glued to their devices. I have a 13 and an almost 16 year old and we have a device basket. So there are times when like we are doing things as a family, eating dinner, we're playing a game, we're watching a show and it's like devices in the device basket. And I still, so to this day, and we've had the device basket for a while, I get a good eye roll, but I think they almost are relieved, you know, just like get like a few minutes where they're not having to like send a snap back, which can we as adults just agree that this culture of like, I'm just going to take a picture and send it to you, no message, no words. And then I expect you to take a photo of yourself and send it to me. I said to my daughter, I go, but what if you're like not camera ready? What if you don't want to take a photo? No, you take a a picture of your ceiling. 
Oh, it could be of like the side of your head or your ceiling or a book or whatever's in your room. And I was just like, this is the first time I feel really old because I don't get it. No, I don't get it either. My son, my son, my oldest son went to lacrosse camp Uh and had like three streaks that he like needed to keep up. And it's like a no phone lacrosse camp, bless the stars. Yeah. And he's like, can I trust you? to do these three streaks like with his friends since like kindergarten so I was like sure oh so they're all like hey this is so bad right because oh. they know I have it <laughs> but the job was to just take do not take a picture of yourself so obviously I have to take pictures of myself because I've known these boys forever but he's like don't take a picture of yourself just take a picture of the ceiling I was like same thing I don't get it like if it's not of yourself mm-hmm. then no but you know, my parents didn't understand why I would, you know, listen to the radio and record, uh, remember the tape recorders, I would record a song uh-huh. and then I would like rewind, play, rewind, play, rewind, play to try to write the lyrics before you could look at the lyrics online. Oh, and, uh, you didn't do that? No. Oh yeah. Jump around house of pain. It took me like weeks <laughs> and then half the lyrics were wrong once they started publishing lyrics. <laughs> But like, she'd be like, I literally don't get that. I don't get it. And that's where I'm at now. Yeah. Yeah. It's bananas. Well, I am so glad that you came on. Do you have any parting words for anybody who is maybe on the fence? Like, do I, do I invest in this and get this book and check it out? And I will say there's a beautiful, beautiful study guide kind of book club uh, companion that Katie has on her website that you can download. So if you want to work as a staff kind of going through the workflows, it's a great guide. But what would you say to folks kind of ending words about this whole idea of shifting to student-led? I would say that a lot of the times when we work with teachers, they always say, I want something that I could do tomorrow. And I think the book has tens and tens and tens of Mm. ideas of things that you can do tomorrow that right away will take some of the pressure of planning off of you to build that responsibility and agency in learners. Yeah. And we did really chalk this book full of like online templates you can copy and modify. So trying to save teachers a little bit of time. And then at the end of every chapter, there's kind of like a put it into practice. And we really scaffolded that process as well to guide you through taking one of these workflows and implementing it with students. So hopefully it's really user-friendly for teachers because we know you don't have a lot of time. Kind of like a checklist for how to make a gift wish list on Excel. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Thank you so much, Katie, for joining me. Nice to chat. All right. Bye. Bye. All right. So a wonderful conversation with Dr. Katie Novak about our new book. It is currently available on Amazon or you can get it at Barnes and Noble. Wherever you buy your books, you should be able to find it in hard copy or in a digital version. So we hope it helps you to make small shifts that have a very big impact. And if you have any questions, you can reach out to me on Twitter at Catlin underscore Tucker or on Instagram at Catlin Tucker or via my website website, catlintucker.com. 